Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet Charles Oldham, author of The Senator's Son, a turn-of-the-century true crime mystery set on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. On Monday, February 13, 1905, eight-year-old Kenneth Beasley, son of a state senator, walked to the back of the school playground near the cold woods and swamplands of Currituck County and never returned. A year later, a political rival of Kenneth's father was arrested and forced to endure a show trial of star lawyers, spectators, and newspaper reporters. After the verdict and surprising aftermath, author Charles Oldham reopened the case, using modern research methods and his legal training to offer his own theory about what really and truly happened in this tragedy that ripped families apart and shocked the state. We start in a good place with Charles reading from the beginning of the book. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Currituck County is an old place, almost as old as Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. Naturally, it has seen a lot of changes. And as with most parts of the North Carolina coast, the biggest changes have been the most recent ones. When you drive down the Currituck Peninsula on Highway 158, the main thoroughfare between the Hampton Roads of Virginia and North Carolina's Outer Banks, you don't see very much that's old. The most conspicuous sites are convenience stores, surf shops, fast food outlets, the kinds of things that make travel easier for tourists when they head down to Kill Devil Hills and Nags Head on summer weekends. As easy as possible, at least. Those beaches are getting more and more popular all the time, and the traffic congestion shows it. If ever there was a road that streamed out to be called a beach highway, Highway 158 would be it. But all of that's relatively new. Until a couple of generations ago, there were no waterfront condominiums or marinas and not many convenience stores in Currituck. Most folks still made their living the way their forebears did, which is to say from the land and the water. It was a region of small farms where everybody worked hard to squeeze harvests of corn, potatoes, and soybeans out of the damp, sandy soil. And the soil is still damp today because it's surrounded by water. In any direction, you can't go far without coming across a swampy, blackwater creek that leads out into the salty waters of Currituck and Albemarle Sounds. 
It's not surprising that when the farmers were not working the fields, they were working the sounds. They were fishing and hunting the ducks and geese that used to flock there in mass. But if you venture off the highway onto one of the side roads, which few of the beachgoers do, it doesn't take long to find that Carolina tidewater as it once was. You can still see old white farmhouses surrounded by fields, most of them with a big oak tree or two, and many of them with a small family cemetery nearby. In the old days, farm families held onto the land and onto each other. Few people cared to venture too far afield, even after death. One of those side roads leads a couple miles to the tiny crossroads of Poplar Branch. Off the highway, back in the woods, the sounds of the traffic die away quickly. The road dips down into the bottom land of the maple swamp, where dark water licks up against the trunks of sweet gum, maple, and cypress trees, so thick that it's a challenge even to see ten feet ahead of you. All around, you see shadows. Not just in the summer, when the leaves grow thickly on the trees and the sunlight barely filters down to dapple the ground. Even on an overcast winter day, the light creates illusions. The gray tree bark casts its reflection onto the water, and you have to watch your step carefully. What you see might actually be a fallen limb, and it might be solid enough to support you, or it might not. It might also be one of the poisonous snakes that abound in the area. If you wanted to get lost in the woods, this would be an easy place to do it, especially if you were an eight-year-old boy. Or just as well, if you wanted a boy to get lost in the woods and leave no trace, this spot would serve your purpose. This story does not lack for adjectives. It is a sad, heart-wrenching human drama. It's also a, conf a confounding tale. Of course, there have always been clues, but they lead in different directions, usually into blind alleys. Theories, but they fail to satisfy. Even a trial and a verdict, and yet doubts have remained. For years, it seemed as if this case had been written on ice, and all the details had melted away with time, until there was one tiny, overlooked clue that finally brought some resolution in the minds of some people, but by no means all. It's the kind of mystery that you want, with all your heart and soul, to solve. So many people suffered, and you want them to rest in peace. But a solution remains elusive, even after a lot of digging through the swamps, the woods, attics, books, and repressed recollections, and maybe most of all, through a history of brutal, dirty politics that most folks with their 21st century sensibilities would rather forget, and for a long time did forget. Some folks will think, at first, I'm surprised I haven't heard this story before. And then, with some reflection about how long it takes for painful memories to reemerge, they will think, oh yeah, that's why I haven't heard it. History, like a tall tree, casts a long shadow. The Senator's Son is Charles Oldham's first published book and the product of several lifelong passions. Charles was born and raised in Sanford, North Carolina, the son of a community college professor and a math teacher, where his parents instilled in him a natural curiosity and a love for reading. Early on, Charles had a special interest in history and politics, most especially that of North Carolina, where his family roots go back more than two centuries. He also has a keen eye for mysteries, for searching out the details of a story that needs to be explored. It's a talent that led him to become an attorney and that led him to try to solve a mystery more than a century old. Charles graduated from Davidson College, University of Georgia Law School, and when he's not writing or thinking about that next mystery to solve, he can be found doing just about anything outdoors, especially hiking and camping. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.
Charles, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so you're a North Carolinian. You're now living in Charlotte, right? Yes, that's correct. Where'd you grow up? Well, my, uh, my hometown is Sanford, North Carolina, which yeah. is uh, not too far from Raleigh. Yeah, like I said in the opening, uh, your parents were teachers, right? Yes. Did, yeah. did, did this upbringing, uh, the son of teachers, have something to do with your writing this book? Well, I'm sure it did. It's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I grew up yeah. surrounded by books, as you might mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. And when, you, uh, you know, when you're encouraged to do a lot of reading when you're a kid, uh, it, it, leads to, uh, it tends to arouse curiosity in people, I think. And uh, I have to say that I was a, I'm not going to say that I was a really precocious kid, but I was a curious kid. Good, good. Well, you must have been curious to spend as much time as you did uh, digging into this mystery here, which is raising my next question. How did you learn about this story? Well, I, I came across it just by sort of by chance. Uh, I remember when I was about, uh, I was about 13, I was in middle school. I, uh, I came across this, uh, this book that was written back in the 1950s. Uh, the book was called Dead and Gone. It's by an author named uh, Manly Wade Wellman. And it was a, uh, I, I came across this, uh, like I said, just by chance, because I was a kind of a... You, you can say you're yeah, a nerd, right? I, I was, yeah. I very much so, yes. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was the uh, nerdy little uh, little yeah. history geek who found these things these things interesting. Yeah, but you're the one who wrote the book, so... True, yeah, true. Yeah. But um, this book I came across was a, a collection of uh, true crime stories of... Um, sort of mysterious murder cases that occurred in North Carolina from the early 1800s up until the early 1900s. The book was written in the 1950s. And one of, one of the cases that was covered in the book was this story about a, a mysterious child disappearance that occurred in Currituck County in 1905. And Currituck County, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, in the very northeasternmost part of North Carolina. It's right just on the edge of the Outer Banks, south of, um, well, present-day Virginia Beach mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. Norfolk, Virginia. And it's, it's about a, a young boy who was eight years old. His name is Kenneth Beasley. And he, uh, he disappeared very mysteriously in this, uh, this rural community where he lived with his family. Um, it... Um, and it drew you in and caught your attention. Yes, yeah. very much so. Now, the book that was written then that drew you into it, did it solve the mystery? Did it just tell part of the story? It it was basically a synopsis of the story. Okay. It uh, told what the I mean what the established facts were, but it really didn't didn't go beyond that. It kind of it really left it hanging in the end. Uh, there was uh, it it set forth what what most people thought, or would have thought in the 1950s was the the correct conclusion about what probably happened, mm-hmm. but it left me, it left me hanging. It left de- definitely left me wondering what more was out there because I figured there was more to the story. Well, we're not going to give away you know, the ending and your theories about what actually happened, but let's talk about let's sketch out the story just a little bit so mm-hmm. people have an overview of this story. It starts with this disappearance, which you're going to read about in just a minute, um, with this young boy. Uh, these two arch political rivals. One of them gets put on trial. Pick it up from there. So tell us sort of the, the arc of the story here. Okay. Well, the young boy, Kenneth, who was eight years old at the time, he he disappeared into the woods, this uh, swampy stretch of woods, right behind this little uh, rural schoolhouse that he attended at the time. He and the other kids were out at lunch playing around at recess. And um, towards the end of the recess period, Kenneth apparently wandered down into the woods behind the schoolhouse, and he didn't return when the bell started ringing at the end of the recess period. 
So when this was a, a February day in uh, 1905, and the weather was pretty chilly, and shortly after Kenneth went missing, the snow started to fall. So the neighbors in the community, they gathered, gathered together, and they started searching through the woods trying to find him because they realized that he was, uh, he was in danger, and if, he was, if they didn't find him, then he would get lost in the woods and he would, uh, might, he would die from hypothermia. So the neighbors did everything they could to search through the woods. They poking with sticks through the, through the swamp because that's what the, what the under, undergrowth and the topography were, were like at the time. And they did the best they could. They searched for a couple of days, and they never found the boy. Now, the, the really interesting thing, interesting thing is that uh, Kenneth's father... His name was Samuel Beasley, and he was the state senator who represented Currituck County in the state legislature at the time. And when when the boy went missing, there were there were rumors that started pretty pretty quickly that Kenneth might have been kidnapped by a man in the community who had a political grudge against Kenneth's father. This fellow's name was uh, Joshua Harrison, and he was a local farmer pretty prominent fellow in the community because he had political connections of his own. Uh, Mr. Harrison, in fact, uh, was the brother-in-law of a fellow named Thomas Jarvis, who was a former governor and former United States senator from North Carolina. Um, Mr. Harrison's daughter, her name was uh, Nina Harrison, a young lady who was in her, in her 20s at the time. Nina Harrison was actually Kenneth's teacher at the, the schoolhouse where he, that he, he disappeared from. So the um, rumors started flying around immediately, and the uh, people also kept in mind that Mr. Harrison had a bit of a checkered past. On two different occasions, about 30 years earlier, he had been charged with murders. He had been put on trial twice, once for uh, murdering another young child and once for murdering his own father, in fact. But he'd gotten off in both of those, from my reading of your book, he, he, he wasn't convicted. That's correct. So he... he, he Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but he had this record, and he suspicion originally came upon him, and there were witnesses who said they saw him in a buggy, and maybe there was a child with him at the time, and he, he ended up getting put on trial, right? Yes. Yeah, and a big show trial with lots of star lawyers who are politicians themselves. Well, that is true, yeah, yeah. although that didn't, that didn't actually happen until about a year and a half after the child okay. disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, it took a while for them to... And that's partly what you cover in your book, that, yes. that things didn't come together immediately, but eventually they did. Mm-hmm. There's a trial, there's a conviction, things happen, but then in your mind, that wasn't the end of the story, right? Correct. And you you decided you, uh, you wanted to go dig a little bit more? Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's read about the disappearance uh, here, and then I want to come back to you to talk about the digging part of what you did. And so... On the morning of February 13, 1905, when Kenneth Beasley trudged off to school on foot, there could not have been that much anxiety weighing on his mind. It's true that he lived on a rural farm, and farm life could be tough in those days when electricity had barely begun to make an impact in the countryside. No doubt he and his sister would have some chores to do later in the day, maybe gathering eggs or milking the cow, as farm kids usually did back then. But Kenneth had a stable, materially secure family with devoted parents, and he had a school to attend, crude though it was, which he could easily walk to without encountering anything more than a passing buckboard wagon or a buggy. And he had friends his age to play with. On that particular day, 
He was probably looking forward to recess, when he and his buddies could go out and throw a few snowballs. It had snowed the day before, and on this cold, cloudy day, there was still some slush on the ground. And of course, Kenneth was only eight years old, a third grader by today's definition. Later, when every event of that day was the subject of legal inquiry, Kenneth's mother would remember, almost in passing, the last thing that her son said to her as he left the house that morning. Or at least, other people remembered Cassie Beasley mentioning it, although it was not part of the testimony that she or anyone else gave in court. Not surprisingly, for a boy his age, Kenneth had pets on his mind. He said to his mother, I've seen some mighty pretty puppies, and I want one. So, Charles, uh, th- this last line here, I've seen some mighty pretty puppies and I want one, you've got a footnote there. Where, where did that come from? How would you find that? That's, uh, that's actually a quote from the, uh, the book that I mentioned earlier that was written in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's recalling something that uh, Kenneth's mother, Cassie, remembered him saying shortly before he disappeared. But it is a little interesting that um, when Cassie Beasley later, later testified in the trial regarding her son's disappearance, she didn't say that. Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't actually know from the court transcript that she, she actually heard Kenneth say that. But it's an important fact in your discovery for the truth here, right? It's, it's one of the best clues that we have. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking of clues, where did you find your clues? How much digging did you do into this story before you decided you wanted to write about it? Well, I, had, uh, I came across some, some really good information in several, several different places. I was, uh, and for example, I was fortunate enough to find the, uh, the written uh, trial record, uh, such as it was, of the, uh, the trial of Mr. Harrison. Now, this is in, around the turn of the century, right? And, yes. And, so at that time, they didn't have, I mean, they probably wrote it out by hand, right? They, oh, I'm, the, yeah. the stenographer was taking mm-hmm. the, the record by hand, which could not necessarily be totally accurate mm-hmm. <laughs> testimony but you, but you had where'd you find it well that that in particular I found in the uh, the Wilson library in Chapel Hill which mm. is a uh, you know a wonderful uh, wonderful resource for uh, for anyone who's um, working on a project like this um, and uh, and that and, and so you read you're, you're reading this transcript that someone stenographers taken down mm-hmm. And this story sort of coming to life before your eyes, and, and yes. is is that when you really got excited about <laughs> this? Well, discovering that, as as you might imagine, was yeah. I was very excited about that. I was yeah. very fortunate to uh, to locate that. I found some of the other the other court documents, and um, you know, looking at it from from someone who has who has practiced law recently, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's definitely a contrast between the way they did it back then, more than a hundred years ago, and the way we the way we do it now. Right. They didn't uh, they didn't do what we would call verbatim transcripts back then, because like you say, it was this the stenographer sitting there probably writing it down in in shorthand mm-hmm. and then then typing it up later but but those were the tools that they had to work with back then well you've got the, some some wonderful pictures in the book where did you find all the pictures some of them uh actually were i was allowed to use by by relatives of the of the beasley family who are who are still around mm-hmm. who were who were very kind in uh talking with me about the case and uh they were very very respectful of the, uh, the efforts I was making to, to tell the story, and I, I really, really do appreciate that a lot. And, of course, um, you know, in 1905 and 1907, when the, when the trial was held, obviously no TV or radio involved, but there were newspapers at the time. And uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about the newspapers in just a second. Oh, yes. They, they were a bit speculative and using a little bit of journalistic license and what they 
what they did, which probably was not the kind of license you'd want. Might be called fake news today. Oh yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it about the real people in this story that made you want to write about them? Well, I um, what the one thing that I knew really needed to be told about the case, which which I knew had not been had not really been covered previously, was uh, really the the political uh, aspects of it. Um, you know, when I when I read that first uh, account of the case, it was written in the mm-hmm. 1950s. You know, it mentioned the fact that you know Kent's father was a state senator, and this other fellow, Mr. Harrison, had the grudge against him. And I knew I knew from that first account that, at first blush, the reason for the for the grudge was that Senator Beasley was a was very much an advocate for prohibition legislation anti-liquor legislation and this mr mr harrison yeah he, he, he was selling wine right? yeah yeah even <laughs> even though he had a he had political political connections of his own right. and he had uh, influential relatives he was also known as sort, sort of a black sheep in the family because he was a, a bootlegger he was known to be selling selling illicit wine out of his barn mm. and a lot of people at that at that time did not approve of it and uh, this was when uh, prohibition was first becoming a political issue in north carolina and Senator Beasley uh, put some legislation through the General Assembly to prohibit the sale of wine in Currituck County. And supposedly that was the motive for Mr. Harrison to uh, want to do harm to Senator Beasley. Mm. But, you know, even, even taking that into account, I, I still thought to myself, you know, a, a liquor ordinance, I mean, is that, is that really a motive to for kill someone, someone. To, yeah. to harm a completely innocent eight-year-old child over? So I wondered about that, and you know, the more that I found out about what North Carolina politics was like back then, you know, it's not that far-fetched at all, hmm. because we're talking about a a time in our history that was really, really nasty. I mean, you you you, you cover a lot of ground uh, in this book. You talk about uh, white supremacy, race, and politics. You do cover the anti-liquor laws, and and you talk about a culture of lynching that. Uh, was occurring at the time, which I kind of, this kind of surprised me. In, in the middle of the book, you address a little uh, story there where the governor was almost lynched by a mob. That's true. A white governor. Yes. Right. And and it was a political motive, right? Yes. Yeah. That was in uh, that happened in 1898, and that was um, the year of the the infamous white supremacy campaign in North Carolina. And I'll say that I'm I'm really fortunate to have come along at, at just the right time to write this story because uh, you know, recently we've had a lot of new new scholarship to come out uh, from historians like you know, like Tim Tyson and David Zaselski who have written about that that time period in North Carolina and it was rough because that was in in 1898 when um, the Democratic Party which back then was a completely different institution from what it is now uh, Democrats sought to take complete control of North Carolina's government. And they sought to do it by pushing pushing racism and pushing white supremacy, white supremacist policies in their election campaign. And at the time, in 1898, we had a governor who had, um, a Republican governor who sort of had been elected as sort of a sort of a fluke in 1896. And Democrats sought to take back control of the state government by, you know, promising that they were going to remove African Americans from political participation there. And this was part of the fusionist movement, right? The, yes. It was it was poor whites 
and African Americans getting together, and that collective was a powerful voting block yes. at that time. And the Democrats were trying to break that, and they were using, as I understand it from your book and other sources, other books I've read, they were using race as a way to do that. That's correct. Right. And uh, Sam Beasley, Kenneth's father, was first elected to the state legislature in 1898 as a Democrat, mm-hmm. and he was he was very much part of that uh, part of that white supremacy movement. And I can't remember whether you covered it in your book, but there's going to be another author uh, in this same season uh, that that your episode comes out, uh, Philip Gerard, who who wrote a book, Cape Fear Rising, about the Wilmington yes. coup d'état, which mm-hmm. which was the same time period where yes. the whites of Wilmington through violence and otherwise, pretty mm-hmm. much took over after a losing election, right? Yeah. Some historians would tell you that it was the, the only successful political coup d'etat in American history. Hmm. It happened uh, shortly after the uh, 1898 election when um, the, I hate to keep using this term, but the, the Democrats and the um, white supremacists in Wilmington decided that they were going to remove the fusionist, Republican, mixed-race city government in Wilmington. And they, they took over City Hall. They burned down the, uh, the office of a, a black-owned newspaper in Wilmington, and they went roaming through the streets, killing anyone who got in their way. And uh, quite a number of people were, were actually killed in that riot. And I wondered why there was this focus on race in your book, since the participants were white, but it ties into the political nature of the times, right? Yes, it does. And this whole and – and the newspapers were basically fueling this fire of racism, right? Very much so. So let's pick up there. You've got a reading um, beginning on uh, page 23 that kind of gets into that part of, of, of this story. The newspapers were speculating within days that the, the, the disappearance was not accidental. On Wednesday, the Raleigh News Observer printed that – it's thought that Kenneth was made a prisoner by some parties to be held for ransom. The following day, the paper continued its speculation. They said, The mystery deepens. If the boy was kidnapped, who are his abductors? And for what reason is he being held? If he has met with foul play and is now dead, where is his body concealed? As the paper put it, these are the questions being asked many times, but no one, however, was yet speaking for, for attribution. Over the next week, the shortcomings of communication and of newspaper coverage were made plain by some wishful but badly mistaken reporting. Several papers carried rumors that Kenneth had been found alive and unharmed in an unoccupied lumberman's log cabin nestled deep in the woods behind the schoolhouse. Supposedly, Kenneth had been discovered locked in with a white man who was in a semi-conscious condition from drinking whiskey or taking morphine or both. Now, this report was completely untrue, but it was notable for a couple of reasons. First, it introduced the specter of illicit drunkenness, which would be a recurring feature in the story. Second, it posited a man in the lumber cabin. His name is still unknown, although he would be referred to variously as a Yankee or a foreigner and a hermit as the story unfolded. And then on February 24, 1905, the News Observer carried its most provocative piece yet, the story, which was reprinted in several other papers throughout North Carolina, is steeped in an- anonymity and very implicit in its assertions. Understandable, perhaps, in a time when it was e- much easier to sue for common law defamation than it is now. The story quoted several excerpts from a letter that was written to a gentleman of Raleigh from 
a party living near the home of Senator Beasley. No one has ever identified who sent or received the letter, or how it came into the hands of the, of the News Observer, or indeed whether the letter actually existed, or whether it was just a euphemism for anonymous gossip. It described how the search for Kenneth had continued for several days, through all of the, quote, potato houses and hills and wells, under the hall and houses, every outhouse, fodder loft, barn, woods, and swamp. It also referenced the Yankee in the cabin, stating that, contrary to previous reports, the bloodhounds had followed Kenneth's scent to the cabin, and the searchers then coerced the unwilling Yankee to let them search his cabin, but found nothing. The letter writer also claimed to have some insight into the Beasley home, and the sorrow that Kenneth's parents were enduring. It said, They think that Mrs. Beasley will die. She neither eats nor sleeps, only as they give her medicine to make her sleep. And the minute her eyes are open, she's crying, Give me the body of my boy. The letter also said that, On the afternoon of Kenneth's disappearance, there was a strange man seen up about Barco Post Office, about 12 miles north of Poplar Branch, and in two more places by three different men. He was in a buggy drawn by a black mule, and he had the boy down between his knees, but the people saw him before they heard that the boy was missing. The men say that saw him that the boy was crying and seemed to be dissatisfied, but the man was talking to him roughly. The three witnesses were identified as Caleb Barco, Matt Griggs, and W.E. Ansel, the elected clerk of court for Currituck County all of whom were suspicious to see a man riding in his buggy with a small child in such cold and rainy weather. And finally, the anonymous author left this hint, pointing to the identity of the alleged strange man. It said, Mr. Joshua Harrison went off Tuesday morning and never got back until Sunday. He claimed he had been to Pastor Tank. Unquote. Anyone in Currituck County would have picked up on the significance. Joshua Harrison was the well-known landowner and farmer from Jarvisburg, and the father of Kenneth's teacher, Miss Nina Harrison, and also the brother-in-law of the former diplomat, governor, and U.S. senator. So, Charles, what do you make of this uh, time period when the newspapers would print pretty much anything that suited uh, the, the, the will of the publisher or the political leanings of the, of the publication? Well, I mean, that's just it. I mean, the, uh, the whole, whole journalistic... Uh, you know, field back then was very, very partisan, and it tended to be, to be very sensationalist. I mean, uh, we tend to think of it now as the sort of the yellow press days, and it was it was certainly true in North Carolina. And yet, uh, even though some of the earlier parts of what you just read were, were totally fabricated, um, there was testimony later at the trial about people having seen Joshua Harrison in a buggy. With a small boy. That's right? true. And, mm-hmm. but, and, but then on cross-examination, the accounts were conflicting about could they really see him or did they hear him? And, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And then it was almost a year and a half later before anybody came forward with that story, right? Well, it was a year and a half before, the, before anyone took legal action, right. before Mr. Harrison was actually charged. Did you ever find out who wrote this anonymous letter? No. No, no one knows. And, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, there's some question about whether it was really a letter or whether it was just um, the, the newspaper writers, you know, making up uh, sort of a narrative that they, they wanted, to, wanted it to sound, um, you know, sound more credible by mm. depicting it as a letter. But it may have been they were just reporting gossip. So what made you think, Charles, that you could solve a mystery that hadn't been solved in over 100 years? Well, I knew, 
you know, I knew there were people out there who had their own their own ideas about what you know what probably happened. You know, even though it's been a hundred years, um, when I think about Currituck County, it's a it's a fairly small place. Mm-hmm. It's grown a lot over the past several years, which I which I mentioned in the book. But uh, there are quite a few folks around who have who have have family roots, whose ancestors were participants in this, and I had a feeling that if I if I reached out to them. And you know, let them know that I was I was interested in in telling the story and doing it in in an honest and historically credible way. Then I had a feeling that they would they would want to want to talk about it. And I had a feeling that uh, you know when I combined combined that with the you know the hard sources that are available like the newspapers and the legal legal documents, I could I would have a good chance of you know weighing the possibilities mm-hmm. about what happened. I mean, was the boy kidnapped? Or did he just get lost in the woods, and did he just sadly die of hypothermia in the woods, and they just never never found his body? Um, or did All he right. did he fall into a creek and drown, or so forth? All right, we're going to talk about more of this mystery uh, mm-hmm. when we come back. Uh, we'll have the writer life segment. We'll uh, we'll talk. We're going to take you to some of the scenes of the trial, and I'm going to ask Charles some more questions about uh, about this mystery. So stay with us. Hey listeners, I'm here at Park Road Books uh, with Jamie. We're talking about uh, books for the season. Jamie, you got a couple picks for us? I do. What you got? Well, first one is a kid's book came out last month that we love around here. It's called Snack Attack. Making me hungry just thinking about it. All right. The author is uh, Terry Border, who's got several other kids' books that are a lot of fun. Um, This one is the story of three snack friends who decide to go play around the house. While they think they are safe from the monster known as the kid, um, that may not necessarily be the case. It's a a real fun book that starts with photography, uh, a cookie, a pretzel, and a cheese doodle. (laughs) And then uh, the artist makes some embellishments from there. It's great fun. It's a children's book, right? Yes. So so great. Uh, some grandparent might want to buy this for Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. What else you got? Um, the other book I have for you today is the new Ann Patchett called The Dutch House. Um, this this is my book of the year. It, it, it is really, really well written. Um, I enjoyed every minute of it. Tell me about it. Um, it's the story of a family out living outside of uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And... Um, the father buys this lavish, expensive house that's owned by a Dutch family who passed away. And they keep all the furniture and all the paintings and everything. And uh, the wife actually leaves the picture. She can't uh, deal with the house. And so the father remarries, and it starts to cause problems with the father's two children. But there's only one child on the cover here. uh, There is only one child on the cover. That is actually supposed to be one of the paintings that's left over in the house. Uh, Okay. So we got, hey, end of the year's coming. We got, uh, where better to get books than at where? Oh, Park Road Books. Park Road Books. Come on down. We have what you're looking for. Uh, Jamie, thanks. You're welcome. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with Charles Oldham, author of The Senator's Son, The Shocking Disappearance, The Celebrated Trial, and The Mystery That Remains a Century Later. 
Charles, we were talking a little bit about the times, but we didn't really focus on this idea of ransom kidnapping. Uh, j just briefly, this was kind of a new thing at that point in history, right? It really was. Um, you know, this is, it's 1905 when it happened. And one thing to bear in mind is that this was, this was before, you know, the, say, the Prohibition era and what we would call the gangster era of the 1920s and the 1930s. I mean, that was when, when you know, organized crime first became, became a, a, a well-known phenomenon in the United States, and especially in the cities. And in the 1920s and 30s, it was, was when kidnapping really became a national epidemic. It was, uh, you know, it was... Um, Really, really fueled by the prohibition era and money laundering and that type of thing, and kidnapping actually became so common in the 1920s and 30s that um, uh, that's when Congress passed the uh, the Lindbergh Law, making it a federal crime, which yeah. of course was named after the, right, the most infamous kidnapping of all time. And you you had laid the foundation in the book a little bit with with two stories, and we're not yeah. going to go into those, mm -hmm. but about two kidnappings that preceded this, but. Um, when he went missing and they couldn't find him and all this political narrative started swirling, mm -hmm. um, the papers naturally gravitated to this idea that it must have been a ransom related to kidnapping of some kind, right? Well, that was definitely one possibility, but mm -hmm. it's, it's... Was there ever a ransom demand? Not that, not that anyone has ever documented. Okay. And really that's what... Uh, it would have been very unusual at the time because... In 1905, ransom kidnapping was almost unknown, and you know I describe this in some detail in the book. But you know, prior to that time, there had only been two other documented cases of, of a ransom kidnapping in the United States. And wasn't that one of the problems with prosecution because they weren't sure there wasn't legislation necessarily dealt with this idea of ransom kidnapping? Well, it, it was a concern because I mean, technically, in North Carolina at the time, kidnapping was not a crime. It was not mentioned in the North Carolina statutes anywhere because it had, it just hadn't hadn't occurred. Hmm. Uh, there had been one case that happened in Philadelphia in the 1870s, which was very famous. It was actually the first kidna child kidnapping in which a, a documented ransom demand was made. It was a case of uh, Charlie Ross. And you cover that in your book. Yeah. I did. Yeah. There was that one, and then there was another one that happened in Omaha, Nebraska in uh, the year 1900, just a few years before. And that, uh, that also involved a wealthy family whose, uh, whose young son was kidnapped by a fellow who had, uh, who had a, um, a fin financial grudge against the young man's father. They, they had been in uh, conflicting businesses for a while. And so that, uh, knowing about that, it, it led me to suspect that maybe that Omaha case might have, might have served as an mm. inspiration for, say, Joshua Harrison if he had a, a grudge against Kenneth Beasley's father. He might have taken upon taken that example as a a means of either taking revenge or maybe collecting money from Sam Beasley, hmm. because in that Nebraska case there was there was actually a ransom paid and it was received. So that was the first documented case of a successful ransom kidnapping. All right, well we're gonna we're gonna go to the trial here in a little bit, but before we do that, uh, a little bit about the writing life segment here. This is uh, these are some either or. I did this in a couple seasons ago. Either or questions about your writing process. You can be one or the other, both, neither. You just tell me. All right. Ink pen or keyboard? Keyboard most of the time. Okay. Dictionary or spell check? Spell check. Okay. Well, yeah, you're honest. I mean, yeah, someone here they, they say, "Oh, I get out the dictionary every time." <laughs> uh, outline or free flow? 
I used an outline for most, most of it, yeah. And you did the research first and then outlined yes. after you got that? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the light of day or the dark of night? Uh, most of it most of it I did at night. Did you? Yeah, because um, I just found there were fewer, fewer distractions. And that leads to the next one, complete quiet or ambient noise mm-hmm. or music playing. <laughs> uh, I didn't keep music playing most of okay. the time because that's just too much distraction. Of a distraction. But I, uh, I like, to, like to keep it relatively quiet. And I have this um, vision. I mean, you're writing a book that has a gazillion footnotes here, uh, and it's a very thoroughly researched book, almost like a thesis, but fortunately it doesn't read like a thesis. Thank you. Um, I envision this sort of workroom you're in that has – a bulletin board with facts on it and something else. How did you keep track of all this as you're writing the narrative? You're very close, although I'm not, I'm not organized enough to have a, uh, okay. a, a bulletin board as you describe it. But, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Kept stuff on one shelf and or place and then as you're writing? Okay. Several shelves and quite a few file folders all over the place. All right. Writing the first draft or revising it? Uh, which do you like better? Or which do you do? Yeah. Well, I did both naturally, yeah. but I yeah. the the writing is much more much more fun. Mm. Writing the work or submitting it for publication? Oh, writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You did find a publisher, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, marketing or manual labor? Uh, I have to admit, marketing <laughs> is marketing is a new thing yeah, for me, yeah. and it's it's been a bit been a a bit of a challenge. You've been out there on the trail. You've been reading the book at book signings. And that Quite a few, yeah. yes. I've been doing uh, you know, civic clubs and uh, bookstores and libraries and that type of thing. Well, I've had a lot of authors pick manual labor. I've given them the mm-hmm. choice of neither. And nobody, so if you need some manual labor, I've got a lot of authors in the, in well, the show that are willing to do that instead of Mark. Well, <laughs> if, if you twist my arm, yeah, I, I go with manual labor too. <laughs> okay. A uh, couple of questions um, sort of open-ended. What is the fact about you as a writer that people might be surprised to learn. If um, you know, if anything, I, it might it might come as a surprise to some folks. I mean, given the fact that I'm I am a an attorney by profession, uh, some people might be surprised that I I approached the writing process without or with with less. <clears throat> Less of an organized outline that, than you might expect. Mm-hmm. So you had yeah. a broad outline, but when you sat down, mm-hmm. you kind of let the muse take over a little bit. And, I did, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good because it reads, it reads that way. Well, but how did you balance, speaking of lawyer life, how did you balance writing this book with you know, your day job? Well, at first, and uh, I mean the whole the writing process, I mean it took about, took about four years to do the, do the research and the writing. And at first, as you might imagine, it involved a lot of a lot of weekend work and holiday work, and balancing it with uh, uh, with my my legal practice. You know, after after a while, I um, you know I reached a point in my own <clears throat> in my own career where you know I decided that I really enjoy this writing enough that I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a point to devote full time to this, and that's that's what I did. Yeah, I kind of people ask me about that from time to time too, and I said, you know, it's a lot more fun to write about conflict than it is to experience it every day. Yes. <laughs> Very you, true. You took that route. Um, so how has this writing journey, because you spent four years researching writing, now you're out there sharing this uh, uh, excellent book with, with the public. How has your writing journey shaped the rest of your life? Well, it's, uh, it's, it has informed me that you know, I want to continue doing this very type of thing. 
you know, I uh, I would love to write another book, and I've I've I mean, having done it once, I think I've discovered that I I do at least have uh, enough you know <clears throat> enough aptitude for it that I that I could do another another story, although I haven't uh, haven't decided on a topic yet, but uh, I know I definitely want to write another one. It'll probably be about. North Carolina politics and some kind of mystery you need to solve. That's a good guess, and <laughs> I haven't uh, I haven't yet found one that really really floats my boat or gets my juices flowing in the same way that this story has. Hmm. But um, that's definitely what I'm looking for. I think it'll be something like that. Was there something that surprised you more than anything else about this story when you got into it? It was um, frankly, I was I was a little surprised that. Um, people were as willing to talk about it as they were because you know I, I went into it thinking that well some people probably who were direct descendants of the families probably didn't want to talk about it because it's still a small community and mm-hmm. you know when people when people have to you know interact with each other on a daily basis and when you have neighbors whose ancestors might have been involved on the other side of the case from yours, then it's it's still a touchy subject. But I was, um, if anything, I was surprised by how, how friendly and approachable a lot of these folks were. Not everyone was. Some people who who I reached out to and contacted really didn't, just didn't didn't respond, weren't interested in, in taking it up. But I've, I discovered that no one was at least openly hostile to it, and that surprised me a little. Now, Charles, sometimes when authors sit down to write a book, they have an idea that they're going to go in one direction, and then when they get started, they end up going in a completely different direction. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about fiction, but I guess it could apply to nonfiction as well. Is the book that you wrote the book that you set out to write, or were there changes and detours along the way? I didn't, um, you know, I, I found that I didn't really have to make any any radical readjustments in my in my planning because what I what I figured all along was that I was gonna gonna go into this and I was gonna talk about the political aspects of the case and then I was gonna weigh all of the all the evidence and then eventually set forth what I think was the likeliest explanation for what happened to this to this young boy and I mean I'm not gonna give sure. away too many details right now but that's right. I can't say that that is that's basically what I set out to do and I did I did do it in the end. Okay, Charles. So <clears throat> the trial is full of alibis, right? Yes. Uh, and one of the alibi witnesses uh, is a woman named Maggie Gallup. Tell us who she was. Well, Maggie Gallup was uh, Maggie Harrison Gallup, the uh, the adult daughter of Joshua Harrison, who was the uh, the fellow who was uh, charged with uh, kidnapping Kenneth. And he had a she had a home, and uh, well, I don't know if it's her home. She was actually. Uh, taking care of a boarding house in Norfolk, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Just uh, you know, just up the road from uh, Poplar Branch in uh, Currituck County, where Kenneth disappeared. Norfolk Wh- was the nearest uh, nearest city. Which is where Joshua Harrison in the narrative went back and forth. Some, yes, correct. Mm-hmm. And some suspicion about whether he took the boy to Norfolk, possibly to the boarding house. Right? Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. So I'm you pick up in the trial when uh, Maggie Gallup is testifying. Yes. And Ms. Gallup is uh, taking taking questions from uh, Charles Acock, who was uh, one of one of her father's defense attorneys and was also the former governor of North Carolina. Ms. Gallup took the stand, apparently intending to tamp down suspicions that her father had brought Kenneth to her house after snatching him. In the Wellman account, 
Gallup was described by one trial observer as relishing the attention focused upon her. She was, quote, gaudily dressed, haughty in her bearing, and simply full of unbecoming and unnatural display, unquote. From her flippant responses to the questions, as shown in the trial transcript, there may be some basis for that characterization, even as chauvinistic as it is. On direct questioning, Charles Aycock asked Gallup what she remembered about the week of February 13, 1905, and how she had heard of Kenneth's disappearance. Was it from the newspapers, perhaps? Ms. Gallup said, I have not the slightest recollection of the day or week, she said with a flourish. I am free, white, 21 years old, and a woman capable of taking care of myself. I have something to do besides read the newspapers, although Ms. Gallup was actually 34 years old at the time. And then Aycock asked her, do you know anything at all about this boy? Ms. Gallup said, I don't know anything at all, except I suppose he has a family resemblance. I would know a Beasley if I saw him, for they all look alike. And then when asked of her background and the, the untimely death of her husband in 1902, Gallup said, Those things, Governor Aycock, are very tender to me. But she emphasized that her husband and Sam, and Sam Beasley had been very fond of each other, and that then-represented Beasley had visited her husband during his illness and had assisted them with their business affairs. The transcript does not include the content of Ms. Gallup's cross-examination, but according to Wellman, she felt satisfied with her performance and believed she had stood up well to Solicitor Ward's attempts to poke holes in her story. In the end, she looked beguilingly at Ward and said, Now, sir, is there anything else you want to know about it? I have come a long way to tell you, and I am ready to tell you whatever you want to know. And with a fine show of gallantry, Hallett Ward, the prosecutor, smiled back at Miss Gallup and said, Only one thing, my dear madam, only one thing. Where is little Kenneth Beasley? Flair for the dramatic thing. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, you, you could do that in court back then, because right. that, those were the days of when, um, you know, when it was okay to be, to use a oratorical drama in, uh, in court. And I mean, it's, attorneys just don't get away with that in court today, because the rules right. are a lot more right. stringent. Where the question used to take five minutes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so talk just a minute about the interplay of race and politics in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Well, as you might imagine, I, the, the attorneys in, you know, really on both sides were politicians. I mean, there was, uh, there was Hallett Ward, who was the lead prosecutor, and uh, he had several other, other attorneys who were assisting him, but they were all you know, politically minded folks. And Harrison had four defense attorneys. Uh, and two of them, in fact, were former governors of North Carolina. One was Charles A. Gotti, and the other was his, his brother-in-law, Thomas Jarvis. So, as you might imagine, they were, you know, they were arguing this case before a, a jury in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And politics was on everybody's mind back then. And they, you can tell that the attorneys were kind of trying to score political points with the jury and with, with the gallery. And... I, I regret to say it, but in reading the trial transcript, you and in in reading the newspaper accounts, you see the N word all all through the all through the testimony and all through the questions, and it's very apparent that uh, race was always always beneath the surface. And neither side really wanted to appear that they were relying upon you know mm. African Americans to make their case for them because that just wouldn't have worked. Well, we've got a. Uh you got an interesting mystery here. You obviously were very interested in it when you took it off. You wouldn't mm -hmm. have spent this much time working on it. Um, you've got a little piece at the end here you're going to read about uh, how the times and the landscape 
may have changed. Uh, let's let's read that. It's pretty short, and then we'll we'll wrap things up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm describing a stretch of highway which is very close to the uh, family cemetery where uh, where Joshua Harrison is uh, is buried in Turtle County. On the highway, beach-bound cars continue to whiz by, and on a, a tract of former Jarvis land adjacent to the old cornfield and cemetery, there now stands an entirely new business. It's a modern vineyard and winery, which opened within the past few years. On most days, it offers wine tastings and tours of its acres of manicured grapevines, which now include European varieties, such as Chardonnay and Cabernet, as well as native Stupernongs. Now, unlike a century ago, the wine is produced well within the law. Times definitely have changed in Currituck County, and mostly for the better, even considering all the traffic, sprawl, and gentrification. The vineyard puts forth a sweet, sophisticated product that locals and visitors alike can savor openly, even if some aspects of the community's history are a bit more challenging to digest. The land still produces, as at least one witness testified under oath, good wine. So the fertile land hasn't changed that much. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and you can still you can still get wine there legally now, oh, yes. I- illicitly back then through yes. Joshua Harrison delivering it yes. to you perhaps on a buggy. Uh, I'm looking at these pictures in the book here of the cemetery. Did you walk these grounds? Did yes, you, I did. You, did, you went mm-hmm. back and uh, and and the relatives that uh, spoke with you are they still living in that part of the state? A few of them are. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, they they. Gave you interviews. And they did, yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right, so we're not going to tell people, you know, what your theory is because we want to go and buy the book. But uh, where, where can now, you know, available Park Road books, I'm sure, and online at d- different places, but you can also order from your publisher, right? Yes, that's uh, really that's the best way to obtain a copy is directly from my uh, my publisher. And it's called uh, Beach Glass Books, Beach Glass with a G. And uh, it's a... Uh, publishing outfit located in uh, Richmond, Virginia, but the website is beachglassbooks.com. All right. And also available on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble. Okay, so this writing thing, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, this is not a one and done for you? I don't think so. You'll be uh, back. I yeah. think there's another one in me somewhere. Well, Charles, thanks, uh, thanks for being with me today, and thanks for your, uh, your good, good work on this uh, book. It's a very interesting account of a time period that I wasn't very familiar with until uh, I started reading and I had this sort of wow really you know come Mm -hmm. on did that really happen but that, uh, that was the idea yeah so thanks for thanks for being on the show well I appreciate it so much it's been a pleasure well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words in next week's episode we have Philip Lewis. Uh, Philip is the author of The Barrowfields, which he reads and discusses in the concluding episode of season four. Uh, North Carolinian and New York Times bestselling author Ron Rash describes this book as beautifully written and deeply moving and says that Philip is a very talented writer uh, with a debut that deserves a wide and appreciative readership. The book is full of literary allusions that might be easy to miss a bit like being on a treasure hunt. The town of Old Buckram, for example, uh, which is the place where the book is set, comes from the word buckram, a type of coarse linen that is stiffened with glue and used to make book covers. Philip's idea was to have the story take place in Old Buckram, which is to say, within the covers of an old book. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, 
please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.